Stop building prisons and keep the failed laws and policies that filled them to begin with. Mandatory minimums must go. Everyone should be eligible for parole. People with substance abuse problems should get treatment, not jail time. Mass incarceration is a product of bad laws, and we need to change them. Finally, we understand that the real problems in our communities can't be ignored. That's why the third point of our platform calls for community reinvestment. We want the money being wasted on prisons to be reinvested in schools, healthcare, social services, job training classes, and addiction treatment programs. These are the things that actually make our community safer, and it's time we made them our priority. Our platform is a plan, but our strength is in the thousands of people all across the state and country who are standing up against a broken, oppressive system. Join us every Saturday from noon to one to hear how they're working to create a world without prisons. Hello, good morning. Uh, welcome to WPEB 88.1 FM, uh, West Philadelphia Community Radio Station. You are listening WPB, and this is the Carceray P. PA Radio, sorry. My name is Anna, and I'm here with Ashley and Owen and Dave. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. And um, we are going to have a, today we're going to be um, playing uh, some uh, recordings from a presentation that Vicky La uh, did uh, last year um, with Global Women's Strike, uh, which is an organization that works uh, here in, in North Philadelphia in um, Germantown. And the, this group has been um, focusing a little bit and, um, you know, working with women. They are incarcerated and, you know, trying to go and help uh, support women. They're facing uh, separation um, from their family members. And a lot of it has to do with uh, the welfare and um, taking away kids sometimes from people that are being incarcerated. So Vicky La, um, she was uh, she was locked up uh, herself, and um, she edited this. Uh, she published this book called "Resistance Behind Bars: The Struggles of Incarcerated Woman." And um, in this recording, it's a presentation that she did last year. Um, she talks a little bit about how these struggles of women that are being incarcerated, they're behind bars, sometimes don't get enough attention, um, and how a lot of these women they're being facing, you know, um, the separation from their from their kids. Um, in some cases, they're not being able to see them because the women are being also placed in in prisons are really far away from uh, from the community where they live. So this makes it really really hard for their kids or their family to actually being able to visit them so she talks about different cases with women are being um, organizing in the inside and um, you know like through many many years of organizing uh, themselves um, sometimes in solitude like there's like a struggles of women they're doing this struggle by her themselves um, they were actually successful in um, in being able to 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 accomplish something, to at least being able to see their kids after sometimes ten years and being locked up. So um, we're gonna uh, listen one of these um, pieces, and then we're gonna come back with some comments. So following along the thread of hunger strikes, I want to kind of go back in time a little bit to 1999, to a prison in Florida where there was a mother of two children, one of whom was like really young, like, you know, 11 months, and one of whom was like maybe two years old when she went to prison, named Iraida Guanipa. And she was sent to a prison 
you know, 400, 500 miles away from her kids in Florida. Mm. And she said, you know, this is ridiculous. My family can't come and see me. I want to be moved to a prison closer to home. And after three years of unsuccessfully requesting a transfer to be sent to a prison so that her family could visit her more easily, she decided she was going to stage a hunger strike until she got moved. And she staged a 17-day hunger strike. And in response, the prison officials placed her in a special <coughs> housing unit, which is what they call the solitary confinement cells there, where she continued her hunger strike. And when her health failed, officials rushed her to the hospital and then returned her to solitary confinement for 32 more days. So, And in the end, they transferred her a little bit closer to her kids. So they transferred her to a prison that was 300 miles from Miami, where her family was, instead of the 481 miles of the prison where she was at. And she continued to ask and ask and ask to be placed closer to her children, and she was told that the prison nearby had no room for her. And I bring this up as an example of how people in women's prisons can also use the hunger strike to try to get what they want, but it's not necessarily covered in the same way, obviously. And people don't necessarily think, again, of parenting and being close to children as a prison issue that they should look into. And we need to think about how Irada's actions and her issues, you know, challenge what we think about when we think about prison resistance. You know, like, is that resistance, even if it didn't quite get her what she wanted? You know, like, how is this a challenge to the prison system? And now I want to bring in some other ways that people inside women's prisons have organized or resisted in ways that don't necessarily look, that aren't necessarily seen as prison resistance or organizing. So kind of going back to Araida Guanipa, after she gets moved to um, the prison 300 miles closer to Miami, she starts talking to the women around her. She's back in general population, you know, and, you know, like people are talking about their families, their kids, you know, how much time they have, and she realizes that most of the women around her have never received a visit from their children during their entire incarceration because they are so far from Miami, where so many of them are from. At the same time, she's leaping through the newspaper and she sees that in either Virginia or West Virginia, a church paid for a bus to bring kids to go visit their moms in the state women's prison. So she says, well, why can't we have a bus? You know, this would really help. You know, like if a church group or some other organization would pay for a bus. We could get our kids up here. So keep in mind that you're not allowed to quote-unquote solicit, you know, people on the outside when you're in prison. You can't, you know, like write to somebody and be like, hi, will you pay for a bus? Because if you get caught, you could actually get another charge, you know, which could mean another conviction, more time on your sentence. So at great risk to herself, she spent eight to ten years writing to every organization whose address she came across, like by hook or by crook, saying, hello, will you pay for a bus? Hello, would you pay for a bus? You know, many of us have never seen our kids. Would you pay for a bus? Can you help pay for a bus? And after I think it was eight, I think it was eight years, she man finally managed to get an organization, and she wouldn't say how because she didn't want to, you know, sort of ruin, you know, like how this was done so that somebody else might be able to do the same thing. Um, but she did say, finally, there was an organization that was willing to pay for a bus, and because they were willing to pay for the bus. 48 moms got visits from their kids, oh you know, and that was 48 moms, most of whom had not seen their kids during their entire incarcerations, and some of them had spent over 10 years not seeing their mm. children. So again, it's like, you know, when we think of prisons and prison resistance and prison issues, you know, we also need to think like a little bit outside the box that like the media, you know, would hand us on what happens inside prisons. Another issue 
that has affected people inside women's prisons is when they enter pregnant, oftentimes they are shackled. Um, shackling, for those of you who don't know, is when you are handcuffed and then you have a chain and it leads to your belly, your hugely pregnant belly if you are far, far enough along, then another chain that leads to your ankles and you're hobbled like this. In New York State, you also get a box that gets put around your hands and the box is then clamped to your belly chain. The chain is about the weight of a bicycle chain. So imagine being hugely pregnant and going like this to your medical appointment or, you know, to court or someplace else, you know, and having to go up the steps to like a van and sitting in the van, you know, unable to hold on to yourself. And now imagine being in labor and being transported to the hospital like this, you know, and then in many states, it's not up to the medical professional who's treating you to say when the chains and shackles come off. It's up to the prison guard. So there have been many <coughs> stories of women who said, if it wasn't for the doctor, I might have, you know, had to give birth in shackles. Some of them have even said, my doctor almost got into a fist fight with the guard that was accompanying me because the doctor said, these shackles need to come off now. The guard is like, no, I don't feel like taking them off. <laughs> so. They have too much. Yeah. And. Again, you know, women have fought against this awful, horrific practice as well. So going back to 1993, women who were incarcerated in D.C. Um, filed the suit Women Prisoners of District Columbia versus District of Columbia, which actually stopped the practice of shackling women um, during who were in labor. So any other time, you know, like the D.C. jail says that you're fair game. But at least during that time of labor and delivery, you know, you're not subjected to being shackled. In Arizona, a woman named Shawana Nelson filed a suit against prison officials and Correctional Medical Services, which is a private medical provider in the Arizona prison system, because she had been shackled when she was in labor and delivery. And her lawsuit resulted in the Arizona Department of Corrections offering a compromise that said that women who met, quote unquote, certain behavioral criteria would remain unrestrained and people, prisoners who are considered security risks would be restrained with nylon restraints instead of metal shackles and an 18-inch chain. So, not sort of like the huge, wonderful victory that we might all want, but something. And this happened because she said, you know what, this happened to me, not happening to anyone else. In 2009, formerly incarcerated women in New York and outside advocates worked to get an anti-shackling bill passed in New York State. And in New York State in 2009, New York was the seventh state to have any sort of actual legislation limiting or prohibiting the shackling of women during labor, delivery, and postpartum recovery. And I believe Pennsylvania passed its anti-shackling legislation in 2010 or 2011. Yeah, so, but again, as we see, like, you know, like with the case of Shakira Stanton, like we're also not, like shackling is not the end-all be-all, you know, like there's still a whole- We've also other. heard that it's not necessarily being uh, Mandated. Oh, okay. So we've heard it had some reports on that. All right. I mean, also without follow up, or, you know, like, right, like exactly. is not necessarily, again, not right. the end all be all, but I, I point these out as ways right. that people have fought back, right. you know, and we should talk more if there are stories that, that it's not being followed, you know, or if jail and prison staff are disregarding the fact that they're not supposed to be shackling people. Um, and in all of these cases, it's because of the organizing done by people who experience this, who are willing to speak out about this, 
you know, keep in mind that this is a hugely traumatizing event when you're, of course, you know, A, imprisoned, B, going to labor, you know, under, like, jail or prison auspices, and then have to go through this really dehumanizing experience of being shackled. And then, as of December 2012, only 18 states have any sort of legislation limiting or prohibiting the shackling of incarcerated women during childbirth, um, labor, childbirth, and recovery. So even that small portion, like, you know, that leaves, what is it, 32 other states that, you know, say, you know, you can do what you want, you know, under the guise of security, and it doesn't matter because we're not looking at these people as actual people who deserve human dignity and human rights. And again, it's because formerly incarcerated women and currently incarcerated women in some cases who've been directly defected have been involved in organizing and speaking out and sharing their stories, and in some cases devising and implementing strategies. So I'll give the example of New York City where the legislature had actually approved anti-shocking legislation and they were waiting for the governor to sign it. Now, for those of you who know New York City, you know, like, there is a governor's office in Midtown Manhattan. Midtown Manhattan is really busy. Nobody stops for anything. You have a demonstration on, like, every corner. Nobody cares. So the first time they have a demonstration, people are there, and I think they have, like, white ribbons around their arms as handcuffs, or around their wrists as handcuffs, and they're giving out flyers, and people are walking by. They're not paying attention. They're busy. They're on their phones. they got to get someplace. So they're like, you know, so people go back. The organizers, which include several women who've been incarcerated, you know, and have given birth while incarcerated and while shackled, said, you know what? We need to do something that really gives them the image of what shackling looks like. Because nobody gets it. You say shackling to the average person and they don't have a picture in their head. They said, we need to have people be, like, you know, pretend to be shackled. But then all of the incarcerated women said, you know what? We went through this. We don't want to go through this again. You know, like, not even as, like, you know, like a theater, you know, performance act, political protest. We don't want to do this. So then they turned to their allies who are sitting at the table and said, you who have never been incarcerated and have never had to deal with this, would you be willing to wear fake pregnant bellies and fake shackles and sit on the sidewalk, you know, and then we'll, like, do the talking and hand out flyers and everything else, but would you be willing to be the visual? And they did. And so the next time they went outside the governor's office, you had these women sitting with their huge fake pregnant bellies and their shackles sitting there, you know, like, and people were walking by and they'd be like, wait, what? what is this? And somebody would come up and give them a flyer and talk to them and say, we're really asking you to call the governor's office now and say that women shouldn't be shackled anymore. And people would pick up their phones and they would call. And before the day was over, their governor came down and said, oh yes, I'll sign this bill. You know? So, so again, this happened because um, people who had been involved were, you know, were organizing and were instrumental, I think, in devising some of these strategies as well. So that was a fragment of uh, this presentation that Biki Lat did uh, last year in Philadelphia. And um, we're talking a little bit about this book that she put together, Resistance Behind Bars, The Struggle of Incarcerated Woman. And um, is going to read a little fragment about what the book is about and why we're going to be talking about it today. These means of control affect the women themselves, but almost as directly, they affect health of their families on the outside. When women are, pu are punished by incarceration, their family and children's lives receive the damage too. 
the omnipresent threats by prison administrations to stop children from visiting their mothers in prison, or to cut off children's phone calls, can provide a potent tool to quash any objections women prisoners may feel empowered to express. Such threats are not only wielded by prison administrators whenever women confront them with demands for better conditions, they also hang unstated over any thought a woman might have of lodging a complaint about her treatment. Because of the relatively small population of women in state and federal prison systems, women's prisons are few and, more significantly, far between. Many women are already mo incarcerated miles from their families, making visits hard at best. Separating large numbers of black women far from their families robs entire communities of mothers, disrupting the next generation and the hope of the future. When mass incarceration is able to tear apart populations of color in such truly elemental ways, the chances that this country might again see the massive uprisings of resistance that characterized the civil rights movement grow dim, and the long-lasting damage women carry after release, perhaps a result of the sexual degradation experienced behind bars, can deliver lasting damage to community efforts at advancement. Another reason women prisoners are generally absent from discussions of prison justice is that our few efforts to fight back are less visible. The resistance of male prisoners, things like prison rebellions, strikes, and takeovers, are usually newsworthy and recorded. The threat of resistance from male prisoners is often met with extreme and overwhelming physical brut brutality. In contrast, acts of resistance of women prisoners and the system's reaction to such resistance generally pass unnoticed. Less dramatic, less violent, less newsworthy. So that's just a, a fragment of this book. Um, and um, I don't know, we should make some comments about it. It seems to me like a, a theme that we've come back to a number of times on this show in the last couple of months. Um, is the way that the prison system and mass incarceration as a sort of set of policies and practices really derives its power and focuses on breaking apart communities as a means of social control and as a means of being able to perpetuate itself. And I think that we saw, we saw how that happens in some ways relating to reading and writing in a couple of past shows with apiary folks and with books through bars. And I think that this is another uh, a particularly strong and potent example of that, where the, the goal here is to, is to really um, get fundamentally to the heart of what makes communities and to, to break it down, um, to say that, you know, if you cross these lines or if you resist in these ways, um, you will be, you will be separated and isolated. Um, you will be, you know, physically and just sort of emotionally removed from your community. Um, and the, and, and the support structures that we count on, that all of us count on in our lives will be taken away from you or made extremely hard or, you know, these, these, obstacles will be put in the way of your whole family just to exist in some kind of, of communal fashion. Um, I think that that's, that's part of why it's so important to actively uh, fight those, those aspects of the policies by making connections and why resistance can sometimes look like just communicating with people on the inside, just 
getting their advice, getting their input, getting their feedback. Because in that example that she gives of the woman in Florida, communicating was dissidence. Communicating was resisting this pretty important part of the system that was that was designed. I mean, keeping someone in RHU is incredibly expensive. So if they had her in the hole rather than moving her closer to her family, it was costing them money just to maintain this isolation away from her, you know, just to not give her what she wanted, just to prove to her that she had no power in this situation, just to remind her that the penalty for resisting or for breaking the law was was so extreme and so and and so extreme not just for her but for her whole community yeah i think the uh, one of the the interesting parts of uh, what what she's written and what the book is about it also it's not just to mention you know there's this um struggles that are happening inside and there's like lessons and and you know um efforts that we have to support here on the outside but then also um what she's talking about is also and how much attention also the 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 struggles that are being led by by males um, get a lot of attention and get this sort of like you know like level of violence that happens that is real, um, and, and it's not to compare what is happening right, but to say there is a lot of uh, struggles that are being um, maintained by women, and then also she's talking about in the book and how um, when she Bikila herself was uh, was locked up for nine months or something in uh, in uh, Baltimore. She talks about her experience and when she was in jail and how, you know, like small things like the meals that they were um, getting for Thanksgiving, you know, it was like this huge, uh, really hard uh, leg of turkey that they could barely, you know, been able to eat, you know, and it was like something that supposed to be like a, a nice meal or whatever, you know, um, and, and then she found herself surrounded by a lot of women that were already and, uh, and the outside have so many stories of, uh, you know, poverty. Um, they already been um, somehow been suffering from uh, from the, you know, the, the, the segregation that happens also, you know, to women, women of color and poor women also. So I was hearing also like this, you know, but like the levels of oppression that, you know, that one can have, you know, and like one can be like you're poor, you know. But then um, I was reading also the levels of oppression they have, you know, the fact that you are um, not just a poor person, but then also you're a, a, a person that's a, a person of color and then being on top of that, being a woman. So it's like the three factors of oppression that happen to a woman and how um, this this population that's been locked up is suffering not just from the isolation. And she's mentioning also how these uh, prisons they contain um, population of women uh, locked up they're so few they are also really far away from their family members which makes it really really hard for them to be actually being able to keep that connection or that level of solidarity sometimes it's not being seen um and and i think that that's like something that she's mentioning there yeah i i think that gets to a really important part which is how the how the media wants to portray different incarcerated populations and there's a tendency um first of all we all are sometimes victims of trying to make one people look more oppressed or another and and there's an interest in having us all fight over who which of us are the most oppressed but 
these specific ways that the media portrays these populations are actually not in necessarily, I mean, they don't necessarily correspond with who's the most oppressed. They correspond very closely to how we are supposed to stereotype people. So, for example, if the media, the mainstream media, the dominant political structure has an interest in us seeing black men as violent and dangerous, then they'd like to be able to talk about uh, violent resistance behind bars and this sort of the, you know, portray it as as this gang of people who, you know, of, of criminals who are, you know, still fighting, still dangerous, even though they are locked up. If they have an interest in portraying black women and particularly, you know, this like low income black women if they if they're trying to perpetuate this stereotype of the welfare queen, et cetera, then there's an interest in portraying them as bad moms, as people who are are neglectful of their children, and that interest means that they are making that happen. They're you know neglectful because they're isolating them hundreds of miles away from their children. You know there's there's a, a something at stake here, and it's perpetuating these stereotypes when the, the women involved have no control over what kind of mom they can be. I mean, they're trying their, I mean, that example is, is just heartbreaking. They're trying their hardest to see their child once every 10 years and sending out hundreds and hundreds of you know, of, of letters and contacts just to try and arrange for a bus once every 10 years. That's something that the state has an interest in then. And you've got to ask why and why is that being, why is it being portrayed the way it is in the media? Okay, uh, so we have a, a second piece uh, of this, um, but I think that we first are going to go listen some music. We're going to go to a break. And remember, um, you're listening to WPB 88.1 FM, the Carcerate PA Radio. Yeah. 
Listening to 88.1 FM WPEB in Philadelphia, your West Philly community radio station. This is Decarcerate Radio, and we've been listening to Vicki Law talking about resistance among women prisoners. We're going to have another segment here from that same talk that she gave, and we're going to be back with some more commentary, uh, some of our regular voices from the inside segment, and then an important announcement about our upcoming action, the People's Hearing, 
on February 5th in Harrisburg. Here's Vicki Law. Now, because, you know, I'm in the center that houses DHS to give us back our children, I wanted to end with, like, another kind of, like, hopeful story that also kind of ties into, like, what happens, you know, inside women's prisons and jails, but also what could happen to anybody who is incarcerated, you know, like, and has dependent children in their lives. So I also do a zine called Tenacious Art and Writings by Women in Prison. Um, and this is a piece written by a woman who was who is now out of prison, but was incarcerated in Washington State about what she had to go through to keep her children, um, or keep legal custody of her children while she was incarcerated. When I arrived in prison on February 16, 2012, I was very determined to make this a life-changing experience. I also was to tell my two daughters that something positive can come from this, and I will not let my past decide my future. I've striven to do every class I can do. I've run into many roadblocks and hurdles along the way, but I stayed strong, determined, and I got past them. I've accomplished a lot. I've made a change despite a child welfare case I've been fighting when I got to prison. CPS wanted adoption for my daughters. They were fighting strong and hard. I also fought strong and hard. This is extremely difficult when I have limited resources and no freedom, although I was working very diligently. I am proud to say today I have the opportunity to get my princesses home with me. The goal for all parties involved is to return home. I want you to know that there's not been one day that goes by in this prison that I've not done something for my case. I've kited every resource I could. Kiting means like, you know, like to write like a, you know, letter or, you know, a note. I've written many letters to the attorney general, CPS, the judge, the prosecutor, my attorney. I have a copy of each one of the 28 letters. I've called many times just to be hung up on. I've sent and gotten many books that have been a great help. I've explained I'm currently in prison and have no way to pay, and I've gotten a great amount of help with books. But this prison makes it hard. I walked into my counselor one morning in the very beginning, crying after my 13-year-old daughter said to me on the phone, CPS said I should just allow the adoption to take place because your mom has a lot on her plate when she gets out and she don't need you. Wow, this broke my heart. So I walk into my counselor and she immediately said, Ms. Perry, I don't allow crybabies in my office. So if you're going to cry, get out until you stop. I was appalled by her actions, so I walked away, went to my cell, and cried until something told me, do not walk away, your daughters need you. So I approached her office again. She said, I am a DOC counselor. It's fault you are here, and I will not help you with any part of your CPS case. No, I won't allow you to call. No, I won't call for you. And no, I will not give you an envelope. I did not know how to respond to this. I felt I was now locked up and had no way of showing CPS just how much I cared for my children. I could not write without envelopes. I could not call. The CPS office would not take collect calls. I felt completely stuck, but I did not stop. I got to do something. So I got into trouble so I could move from Mission Creek Prison in Belfair, Washington to the Purdy Prison in Gig Harbor. <laughs> this was going backwards, but I knew if I got to Washington Correction Center for women in Gig Harbor, I would have a much better, much more options. So I did it. I got sent back on July 22nd and things got much worse. CPS thought, she can't even follow the rules in a minimum camp setting. How can she parent her children? The fight was on. I felt like a mama bear separated from her cubs. I was ready to fight hard and fierce. I wrote to local attorneys and asked for any and all advice I could get. I would call CPS once a week, even though they would not accept the call. I then would write to I and I and ask for a copy of my phone log, which showed on Washington State legal paper nice. that I indeed dialed their phone number and my call was not accepted. Now I had a record of my attempts. I also would write to my children and fill out a postage transfer slip once a week. 
Now I had a receipt for each time I would write. I applied for our Girl Scouts Behind Bars program, which provided transportation for all children from Everett, Washington to Portland, Oregon, once a month to visit, and this would be free. I now had proof of each month my children did not come when I have court-ordered visits. So while they were building a file against me, I'm building a file for me. All my classes I've completed, all my letters of recommendation, each letter to the courts or anyone involved. I was now at the new counselor's door once a week, asking him to email, email my compliance, and I got a copy of the email for my records. Now I'm ready to fight. I went to the law library and read cases similar to mine. I went to the Incarcerated, Mat incarcerated Mothers Advocacy Project with, Lili with Lillian Huco, a legal voice attorney, and we worked very hard telling my attorney how to fight, what good cause exception to file, how they could not prove I was going... I was not going to change in the very near future because I'm going to work release at the end of May. So I've had my case continue to August. Thank God. And as far as I know, she is out and she is working on a reunification plan with her children and she didn't lose her kids. She wrote this while she was still A few months later after she had written this, um, the governor of Washington State, under much pressure from advocates and organizers and formerly incarcerated, par incarcerated parents of all genders, who organize, like, um, call your legislator, call your governor, you know, send your governor a Valentine on Valentine's Day saying don't destroy our families, sign the Children of Incarcerated Parents Bill into law, which basically stops the timeline for the Adoption and Safe Families Act if a parent is in jail or prison, and simply because a person is in jail or prison. So basically the foster care system can't say, well, your 15 of 22 months is now up. You know, like we're going to terminate your parental rights because now there's a bill that actually says that they're not allowed to. Wow. So obviously it's not the end all be all because again, if it, you know, is not enforced, you know, it's just a worthless piece of paper, but it's a first step into saying like, okay, foster care agency, you know, I'm making every good effort to like reunify with my children and you can't take my kids from me because I have a counselor that won't let me call or, you know, like I'm in a prison halfway across the state. Thanks. Mm. We're back here in WPB 88.1 FM. You're listening to Decarcerate PA Radio. And we're listening a fragment of a presentation that Vicky Lott did. And um, yeah, just what we were talking about it, right? Like uh, the, the, the resistance of women behind bars and, um, you know, like actions that they did, you know, and like documenting their cases to actually, you know, being able to, 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 to also defend themselves, you know, it's like kind of like resistance. Um, that they've been doing inside. Yeah. Another thing that, that she brought up again there is that these laws, even when we advocate so hard and we work so hard to get laws changed, we put pressure on the politicians and the people in power and we get things done, they're only as good as the enforcement of the laws or the enactment of the laws. You saw there the woman involved had a counselor who just wouldn't let her call. I mean, that's, that's a, somebody who is charged with making things happen, who's obstructing it. And we see that, I mean, I think Philly has a good example of that. We've got ban the box legislation that's supposed to um, facilitate formerly incarcerated people getting work when they get out, or at least stop them, uh, stop employers from discriminating against them. And it's, it's already pretty pretty toothless legislation i mean it's it's 
stopping them from asking about it on the very first contact. I mean, there's, there's, it's already could be strengthened in a lot of ways, and it's not enforced, and there's not a mechanism for enforcement. So I think it's a good reminder um, in this specific case about the laws that she's talking about, but also in general that it's up to us to make sure that we hold the, the people charged with enforcing these laws accountable for, for them after we get them changed. I mean, we, we put so much work into the, the good legislation that we do occasionally get passed, um, but we need to, to make sure that it's actually being enacted. I'm going to read a segment here from our, for our regular Voices from the Inside um, part of the show. This is from Larry Stevenson at Greaterford, and I hope that, um, that it offers another perspective or some additional perspective. It's called The Importance of Being a Father in Prison. There's a multitude of reasons why it's important to be a father in prison. However, to me, the most important thing is to do all that's humanly possible to help your children avoid the many pitfalls that can cause them to lose one of the most precious privileges of life, their freedom. It must, constantly, it must be constantly reinforced over and over again that one bad decision in life can cause generations of grief, regret, and heartache beyond repair. This reinforcement must be supported by practical examples and lessons from a personal as well as a historical perspective. Examples like instilling in your children the importance of listening to the good wisdom of their parents, teachers, and elders. These people have their best interest at heart, and they understand how life functions. As fathers, we must teach our children how to use proper discipline when temptations and negative urges try to overpower their good judgment, how to use the correct guidelines on morality and what that entails, virtuous conduct, self-respect, empathy, and respect for others. Teaching our children the art of resiliency, fortitude, humbleness, perseverance, and redemption when and if they face adversity or some form of crisis. Showing them how you've used those principles to reach your high level of self-actualization in your times of challenge and controversy. Teach them that no matter what obstacles they may face in life or where life places them, bloom where you are planted. Instruct your children on the lessons of faith and the importance of having some sense of the divine order, on how to reflect and meditate on life and their purpose for being alive, how to resolve conflicts in a tactful, diplomatic, and peaceful manner. Show how petty emotions can blind their good reasoning if they aren't mindful during a volatile situation. Teach them there's a difference between trained as opposed to being educated. Because when you're trained, you're taught what to think. But when you're educated, you're taught how to think. Educate your children on the significance of being self-reliant, on being producers instead of just consumers, the importance of having the wherewithal to secure their food, clothing, and shelter without depending on others solely to protect and to provide for themselves and their family, to be mindful of others less fortunate than themselves, and give charity where and when it's needed. And never forget to always be kind, humble, and generous. Because as the old saying goes, chances go round, the same people you meet going up, you meet coming down. Demonstrate the importance of having and maintaining good health. It will go a long way with your children. Remind your children that their good health is a blessing and it can't be taken for granted that many children and adults around the world are suffering from basic, everyday, curable health issues, but don't have the remedies available or at their disposal as we do. It must also be taught that to be a good father, our roles and good behaviors towards the mothers of our children is important also. 
For our children to be compatible companions with their future soulmates, they must see those good traits in their fathers as they develop. As fathers, we must teach our children not to be just followers, but leaders too, to be cooperative and work together with others with a common purpose. To have a civic mindset and not be apathetic about government and those chosen to make decisions on our everyday livelihood. To monitor our school systems. To ensure our neighborhoods and communities are, set, are kept safe and clean for everyone. Not to wait on someone else to tell them when to move out on a project to get things done. To take the initiative and steps to complete a mission. To stay positively motivated, ambitious, industrious, with a good work ethic. To have a sense of remembrance of our ancestors and their sacrifices and struggles that allowed us to live a better life. To show reverence to our foreparents by keeping their burial grounds clean and tidy with proper markings for identification. To commemorate them on Memorial Day observances. To teach our children the inevitability of death and how to prepare for themselves emotionally for that event. How family traditions are important to keep cohesion intact and sound. It's important for fathers in prison to teach their children about the significance of being loyal and thorough, not to allow peer pressure to force them to be sympathetic to wrong, blindly adhering to the asinine philosophy of to get along by going along. There's serious need for fathers in prisons to enlighten their children about the horrors of drug and alcohol abuse, to be mindful of being promiscuous, sexually transmitted diseases and AIDS, HIV must be constantly in our conversations with our children. Also violence, that it's learned behavior and it can be unlearned. That those who fail to study history are bound to repeat its mistakes. It's important for fathers in prison to put into practice whatever they preach to their children. If fathers make recommendations or suggestions for their children to pursue and accomplish a high school, college, or vocational diploma or degree or certification, and they do not have those documents themselves, and the opportunity is available for them while confined, that advice may not be taken seriously. Lead by example if you want, and expect your children to listen to your advice. It will take many years to instill the above lessons into our children, but the sooner we get started, the more confidence and wisdom we'll be able to dispense. In essence, the importance of being a father in prison is a big responsibility that requires sincere and genuine efforts, sacrifices, and above all else, big love for our children. This writer is living proof of, on the topic. My two sons were just five and six years of age when I entered the penal system almost 40 years ago. They are 45 and 46 years old now, with bachelor's and master's degrees in education, raising their families to be model citizens and wonderful human beings. My sons epitomize the proverb, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Peace. Larry Stevenson. Wow, that's... that's it, this, he's 40 years locked up away yeah. from, from his family. Yeah, I think the reason I think this is such an incredible statement um, for this show is that it, it doesn't appear to be political. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a sort of loving recommendation um, about uh, fatherhood. And it's, it's relatively general and comprehensive. I mean, he touches on all sorts of things that are obviously very important to him and are important to his idea of how, of what to pass along to the next generation. The reason that I think in this context, it's inherently political and even radical is that this is the recommendation of a man who spent 40 years inside. That's the type of person 
that we're being told and is constantly reinforced to us um, isn't a good father or shouldn't be, you know, shouldn't be part of his kid's life because he is a bad person. He's in prison because he's a bad person and he'll only be a bad influence on his children. Not true. Obviously not true. I mean, he's, he has this, you know, long list of ways in which to be a positive influence and ways in which that, you know, it's hugely important that he be part of his children's life. And this is supposed to be someone who we're okay with the fact we're okay with the fact that the department of corrections is, you know, keeping him or, you know, if it was a woman equally, so we're, these are the same people that Vicki law is talking about. We're supposed to think that because they're in prison, they're not going to be the type of mother that we want to have, you know, their children get, can get taken away from them while they're out or while they're in, they can, you know, they can be totally alienated from their families because we're supposed, we're being led to believe that they won't be good influences on their children. They won't be important people to have in their children's life in order for their children to, to have a good life and a life that has, you know, love and, and opportunity in it. And, and to sort of piggyback a little bit on what you're saying, um, the part that really stuck out to me was the part about violence and um, about how that it's learned behavior and that it can be unlearned. And that was really important to me because a lot of times when, I mean, pretty much always when we put people in prison, we're, we're throwing them away and we're telling the world that, you know, they're these terrible, pe- terrible people that can't be, that that are undeserving of, of freedom and any sort of uh, real life and so that idea that you know people can people can change even when they do make these terrible decisions and and mistakes is really powerful to me yeah and i think uh, um one of the things is right like also um this way of uh dehumanizing also people that's you know behind bars or people that's even like trying to come back to their communities after they've been in prison and talking a little bit about how hard it's also for them once when they're back, right, for f- to, to come back, to get jobs, you know, and it's this, it is not the fact that they don't want to change their lives, that they don't want to come back, and that they actually have a lot to teach us, um, but that is just the whole system also that makes it really hard and keeps separating, you know, people from their family members, people from resources that will allow to them to actually be you know the 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 human being that can participate in a in, in a you know probably i don't know how to say like economical way or whatever you know but it's not it's, it's all these different mechanisms that are pre- uh, preventing from from the people from the person from the human to actually being back and this this whole thing that you owen were mentioning you know like how we're being teaching how these people it's dangerous, they're violent, they should not be uh, around their kids, they should not be allowed to be around their communities or kids. When it's actually, um, it's just what you just mentioned, is a perpetration of the image of the person that's being, um, unfortunately being uh, put behind bars. But it's, I don't know, I think there's like different lessons in, in, in this book and also in this, um, in, in listening these letters um, that is, it's this resistant there's no necessary you know like going and like going in a rally but actually the resistant in a different way and in actually showing 
that we are humans, you know, that we we are still, you know, we have the solutions for our own community. Their solutions are not coming from the system, but they're actually solutions. And, you know, what he's just mentioned in this letter, you know, like to learn from history, you know, to be a loving person, you know, to be part of your community, to to be what we know, you know, but it's just this idea of like, no, we don't really know how to do it. And I think that it is really valuable to listen to those stories, you know, because those are really, really radical ways to resist um, to this um, <clears throat> system that's keeping people separated. Yeah. When we think of how many people um, raise their kids, have a struggle to raise their children outside, just, you know, how many, how hard it is for so many parents. And then you think of all of the ways in which the the system becomes stacked against you once you are locked up or once you have a record, when you come out, you can't get the kind of housing opportunities that you want to be able to provide for your children. You can't get the kind of jobs that you want to be able to, you know, make the money to, um, to, to provide for your children or you can't live in a neighborhood with a you know with a quality school because the neighborhood you can afford to live in has had its school underfunded or closed down and then you think of you know you see somebody like you know Larry Stevenson here and he's not just he's not the exception because he's a good man who got locked up and raised his kids he's an exception because he managed to, or his family managed to survive this huge blow that the state gave them and all of these obstacles that the state put in his path and put in their path and, his, and in the whole community's path. I mean, when it's, it's, it's amazing when people do overcome these obstacles, not because it's amazing to see a couple of you know exceptional people, but because it's amazing that they managed to do it in spite of everything we are doing as a state, as a government, and as a society to hold them back. Um, I think that we are coming to the end of our show, um, but we are going to post this in, uh, in our website and decarcerapa.info. Um, but I also wanted to come back also like, you know, this whole discussion of like, we need to listen also what is what is what people really have to say. And I think all these recommendations that people from the inside, uh, they can make to us and, and also people that's been back in our community this uh, struggling to actually be part of this community and trying to overcome all these obstacles that you are mentioning. Um, you know, it's not easy to get an, uh, a job. There is no easy to to get housing. Um, and linking a little bit with the with the coming events that we're having at the Carcery PA, we're having a big action. This uh, it's uh, February fifth. Yeah, this Wednesday. This Wednesday, um, February fifth, we're having a people's hearing on prison expansion in Harrisburg. Um, and pretty much we we found out that the Department of Corrections was lying about the justification for the prisons that they're building in uh, in Montgomery County right now. And so we're, we tried to get re- legislators to hold hearings, and they wouldn't. So we're holding our own hearings uh, that aren't just going to talk about the justification for these prisons, but also about prison expansion in this state in general, especially when uh, resources are constantly being taken away from our communities. And we have uh, buses leaving from Philadelphia and you can sign up online at decarceratepa.info slash people's hearing, or you can call us at 267-217-DEPA to sign up for a seat on the bus. Can, can you just repeat one more time the phone number? 
267-217-DEPA. And we're leaving at 10. And that's really important because, as we said earlier, we have to make sure that the people who are supposedly um, looking out for us and listening to, uh, to us in government know that we're watching them. This is a classic example where we did all of the work to find out, to uncover the, this um, this miscarriage of justice. The fact that the Department of Corrections misled legislators, they misled the public about why they were building these new prisons. And then, and we put in, you know, after a year of, of work and right to no requests by our awesome team of lawyers, we, we got this information, we got this evidence, we've shown it to legislators, and we still can't get a hearing from the legislators to look into it. I mean, it's just an incredible failure of government and failure of transparency that it happened in the first place and that it won't, isn't being investigated more thoroughly now. It's been written up in the city paper. You can look at it there. Uh, an op-ed was published in the Patriot News. You can find all of those links on our website, decarceratepa.info slash uh well you can just find it uh, <laughs> <laughs> slash study <laughs> slash study um or what i'd really recommend is come for yourself to the event on wednesday february 5th in harrisburg here we're going to have a lot of great speakers from our allies members of our coalition people who are experiencing this um in their lives in their communities and and can see for themselves what this prison expansion will mean for them and you'll find out all of this, all of this good information uh, and how you can be part of holding these legislators and these elected officials and these appointed officials accountable for their actions. Well, um, I think that's for the show today. So once again, if you want to find more information, uh, go to the carceratepa.info and uh, look for the information on the, what was it, uh, people's hearing? Yes, the people's hearing on prison expansion. And and what is the the link for that again? Decarceratepa.info slash people's hearing. It looks like pe- it looks like people shearing, but there will be no <laughs> shearing of people. It's just the, it's the people's hearing. <laughs> okay, uh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Woolly people who want to be sheared may have that opportunity. I don't know. We haven't we haven't planned for it, but. <laughs> Thanks to everybody to be listening. This is uh, WPB 88.1 FM, and you're listening to Carceray PA Radio. Je voulais qu'on la ferme, moi j'ai choisi de rapper J'oublie pas, 
qui m'ont tout pris Qu'à 14 ans pour des fugues J'ai vu ma mort derrière les murs de l'oubli Cellule blindée, délabrée Si tu résistes, t'as une piqûre dans le baba Où les promenades n'existent pas Voudrais me voir calmer Plus jamais on pourra me calmer Rescapé de l'incendie avec cette sale envie de tout cramer Car ils ont fait de ma vie des cendres Marqué à tout jamais Ma rage ne pourra jamais redescendre La rue, j'y dormais déjà à l'âge de 13 ans Pusté par les flics, jour et nuit la chasse est ouverte Et quand la loi abuse de son pouvoir, cette pute est couverte Les étoiles restent les seuls témoins de mes confidences L'enfant seul que personne ne console quand les conflits dansent La faim, le froid, la fatigue et les coups Un monde fait de mensonges, j'aide pas à faciliter les coups de force Ils sont voulu mettre racisme, voler ma liberté Pour ça ils m'ont coupé les ailes à la cible Voulez mes rêves à la cible, que mon âme crève à la cible Que leur glaive seul ainsi, on reconnaît les traîtres à l'insigne Sauvés par la zig, car elle a payé ma rançon mes plaies quand mon avenir était ensemble Leur schéma sans qu'illusion que la foi transcende Au feu il est caché sur les enfants de sang La voix dehors la loi pour une gosse qu'on a rendu marginal Jeune dévoyé, place de foyer en foyer Leur putain de machine veut me croyer Mais vas-y lâche, moi j'ai mal, je rentre pas dans ton moule Mon besoin de liberté est trop grand Rester c'est sauvage, ah bon alors j'emmerde ton slogan Retiens bien tes ordres et ton système Je m'en tape, esquiver tes lois Et tenir un vulgaire, je m'en tape Ma revanche, l'épée, je la grandis avec toi Trop tard dans le cœur, mes plaies ont grandi avec moi C'est trop tard pour que je guérisse, c'est trop tard Au point même de ne plus pouvoir expliquer Les douleurs qui me malmènent, alors je cours c'est me rattrape, je malgré les boulets Et ma mémoire veut ma bâche, je cours Sans cesse et sans répit, sachant pertinemment Que le poison est dans ma tête et qu'on ne peut se mettre son nom Personne ne guérit de son enfance Personne ne peut guérir de son enfance Je viens de l'instant, il me coule encore dans mes veines Comme si j'abritais un volcan, ça va pas brûler 